Tenacious D sketch. I don't know if you've watched Tenacious D, like when, when Mr. Show was big, but they're like sitting there snapping their fingers into like a, into this like a little cassette recorder, and they find out that they weren't recording. Like they were having this like hot this jam. incredible oh, yeah. jam and like, incredible discussion. <laughs> okay. They find out that it's nothing. It's like, oh, how do we do this? You're right. So we should always record as soon as we all come the in. things as soon as we come in. Right. So today on the show, we have to get through the rest of our we've got a lot going on. Spooky season grab bag. Right. Right. We are going to talk about let the right one in in conjunction or building on the conversation that happened Wednesday at the Fort Worth Film Club screening let the right one in which is Thomas Alfredson's 2008 Swedish vampire film we are also going to we're going to have our segment called recommended if you like correct which we I'm excited about that we'll give we'll give some movie recommendations to listeners if they liked or if they like let, let the right, right one in, in. right right but first, you want to you want to talk a bit about Halloween ends. I do because it. So coming off of Halloween Kills, which I actually went back and watched again, which I should not have. <laughs> Halloween Kill. I mean, so the like I said, we we've mentioned at least off, off mic how interesting David Gordon Green's career has been, starting off with George Washington, the small little independent, come out of nowhere film and then being kind of an indie darling and then going into some pretty mainstream you know uh, stoner comedies and then stoner comedies and then kind of describe those and then pairing up with with Jason Bloom and Bloomhouse to do this Halloween trilogy I'm also really interested in his TV stuff that he did yes. with Danny McBride right and, and and that pairing with Danny McBride and his whole kind of taking a mean Napoleon dynamite look to <laughs> to cinema, like the, the foot fist way, and like a lot of those, those comedies that were uh, observant reports specifically, just kind of where they were, they had that sort of innocent savant that was also like hyper violent, hyper realized. It was just kind of like an ugly, very funny, but kind of an ugly kind of comedy. So he's an interesting character. Him and so when they announced the, their trilogy, I think everyone was very excited because you because again, we've come into this era of prestige horror, right? You've got the A24 crew, you've got Jordan Peele doing his thing, and now you've got David Gordon Green and a a bona fide art house director taking on one of probably the, if not the biggest horror franchise of all time. And to varying degrees of success, I think Halloween was pretty well received. I mean, and, and obviously it's a, a meditation on PTSD and how trauma, long-term trauma affects. Which most horror is, to some extent, a meditation on trauma and grief. Right. And and then to fumble it so very poorly with Halloween Kills, which I like. So I went back after I watched Halloween Ends and I was thinking, well, okay, maybe I missed something here. Maybe there was a message here that he was trying to convey. And I couldn't, I can't pick out, aside from mass hysteria and mass vigilantism, but it, but it's, it's wrapped in such heavy-handed, ridiculous dialogue and terrible, terrible acting. It, a lot of the side characters, which it, you, it's really odd to see it in a big budget movie, but like the bartender who was clearly someone they picked off the street or right. that just had nothing that, that, that was reading lines and then all the way to Anthony Michael Hall. And, but, and I don't know if anybody could have done anything with those, with that dialogue, the evil ends tonight or evil dies tonight, just chanted over and over again. Do you feel like that was intentional with that, with that film? Because I think that 
Kills takes such a tonal shift from Halloween. And so do you think that was an intentional turn then on Gordon Green and McBride, who's helping write this show? Do you... I mean, do you think that that and those and the bad acting, I mean, was that like a directorial choice? If so, it's very bold and brave and, and almost uh, you. It is very difficult to navigate that fine line of wagging your finger at the audience, mm-hmm. which I clearly think is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Part of partly what they're doing in ends by sub, you know, by sidelining Michael Myers and putting him in a you know, basically in a hole the entire movie, right. uh, making him ineffectual, making him not be able to really, you know, complete his kills and into a certain showing certain him extent. weak and vulnerable. Right. It it does a couple of things. It it, it really is a finger wag to all of the quote unquote fanboys that we we you know they put these 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 mass murderers up on a pedestal, right? You, we, we root for these guys at the end of the day. Yeah. And Mike Myers is a weird one to root for. I mean, yes, he's just a he's just an evil, in, I mean, like, historically, just an evil, mindless entity. He, he's an analog for kind of all the unspeakable, unnameable evil that kind of exists in the shadows. Right. That, that is unkillable. Yeah, right. And, the, and if you look at the other big bads of the genre, the, you know, Jason... Jason Freddy. Jason is is a mindless killer, but also becomes such a parody by the end of those movies that where he's just punishing preteen sex that it's just a joke, right? Right. Freddie was also jokey at the end of the day as well. So there were there was a little bit of an ease of like being able to champion those guys as people you'd want to see kill people, right? I mean, because it's because right. because again the, the people they're trying to kill are are silly caricatures of teenagers, what have you. Yeah. Mike Myers has always kind of been this presence who's killing innocents for no reason other than he's just evil. And so for the collective to have propped him up and, to, you know, and, and again, I don't necessarily know that that's actually happening aside from, yes, there's complaints about, you know, what kind of kills he has or what can, you know, and you go into these movies wanting uh, kills. I would say going back to Halloween kills, what's interesting again is, is the finger wag. And then additionally, then high, ramping up the violence in that movie, which is, it, it, what are you, again, what are you trying to convey? You're trying to, it seems like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. With ends, I think that I don't necessarily know if they were successful in doing it, but this I think they got back to their message of this generational trauma and how it affects, you know, it affects the kids and it affects the communities. And I and you could argue in a take on Halloween ends is that Michael Myers doesn't really exist in that movie. It is just a Haddonfield is a town that's been beset by horror. And there's another kid who, who has been involved in an accident that was not his really his fault and has been bullied and finds refuge in, in this figure, this boogeyman. And it gives him power, ultimately gives him power finally for the first time in his life. It's, I did not think it was 100% successful, but I think it really is an, a really interesting take to have this message to the viewer of, oh, yeah, all that stuff that you were rooting for, you really shouldn't have been rooting for it, and here's why, and, and really here's the message we were trying to say. I agree, and I think that Halloween ends and Halloween kills are tonally of a piece. I think that ends is more successful in how it pulls pulls that tone off and how it pulls its message off. But both, I mean, if you watch those two back to back, they feel much more of a piece than 
than those two do with the with the first one in this trilogy. I see Halloween Kills as having the, trying to have this message of mob mentality. This is what happens when you whip people up into into a fury, into a fervor, right? This is what happens when you try to kill the big bad. And then with Halloween ends, it almost turns turns its attention to a question of nature versus nurture, which is a pretty boring question. But but I think in a movie like this. <laughs> It's, it's interesting in that it's asking, was this kid Corey always like this? Was this always buried there? Or did this accident bring that out? And the community's refusal to give this kid any the, sort of the, reprieve, right? Any kind of reprieve, but any kind of like forgiveness, help, and love and care that he needed. And this in turn implicates all of that community in the same way that that mob mentality did as well. And you're right, Mike, Michael Myers doesn't exist except for they've killed, quote unquote, killed one boogeyman and they need another one. They have to find this this big bad to hang on to. Right. Because I mean, otherwise the big bad becomes them. They have to look at the, if they look internally, right? Yeah. And even so the father, the father of 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 the kid who Corey accidentally, you know, kills while he's babysitting, wants to help him. He sees him walking on the street and he feels bad. He's like, maybe I can offer him some help. And then he sees the look in his eyes and he and he asks that question point blank. Was he always like this or did we do this? Right. And again, implicating the viewer, implicating society as well. Haddonfield is a weird town. <laughs> uh, uh, so apparently there's one bar that everybody goes to. Yes. Yeah. One diner that everybody goes to. And... Like two cops. Two cops and a radio station with this big broadcast tower. I mean, it is a torch of a broadcast tower, flamethrower. And this DJ who, regardless of how sort of creepy and pervy he seems, kind of knows what he's doing. <laughs> Look, he's he's very reminiscent of the of the DJ. I'm sure you haven't seen Eight Legged Freaks, but it, it's, no, but no. he's very reminiscent right, of the DJ. Right. Well, and also like that is a th- it seems like that's a throwback to Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Sure, but to your point, the, the remiss, you know, the remaining of the community has not forgiven Lori either. In fact, you see that throughout the film as well. There, where she's blamed for Michael Myers's uh, rampage, essentially, and, and, and who's left in its wrath. And, and and this is so. This is something that really yeah, Lori becomes a villain or becomes blamed for this, becomes blamed for, in a way, baiting Michael Myers, but somehow, and I think one of the characters even says, like, you turned on this guy, and then you rejected him. But again, we know this trope. I mean, we know, and I think they subvert it, and I, and I, and I like it, right? But we, we know this trope of sort of, like, men taking revenge on women in a quote-unquote justified way. A lot, you see this in sort of, like, you know, rape revenge movie. But this is, well, you rejected this guy and this is him coming for a quote unquote justified action. Right. Right. But in this, in this film, I think it's interesting too, that the heroes are women. At the end of the day, the heroes are the women that everyone in in a way blamed for this, for this monster coming into town. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and I think, like, I don't, like I said, I don't know if they were 100% successful. And I clearly, there's a lot of, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of discourse going on right now, whether it's, whether it's, it's very much Last Jedi, where you you were either on one side of the fence or the other side of the fence. But I do think that I wish, I wish Kills hadn't been such a low point in the trilogy. I wish it had have been, I wish it had done whatever it was trying to do differently. So we would look at this, even if it was a middling series of Halloween films, fine. But at least they tried to do something different. They tried to do something interesting with it. And I don't think they, you know, they, they did it by making just a ton of money. And then, 
and, and also just kind of subverting all kinds of expectations. They, it's like they almost did it under people's noses yeah. with that, and and we kind of lapped it up, but then rebelled against it. It's I don't know. It's very interesting to me. I think it will be it will be interesting to look at this a few years down the road when we get we were away from it a little bit to see whether culture catches up to what they were actually trying to accomplish. I I think this last one is more interesting for the things that it almost does. So it almost doesn't bring Michael Myers into the movie at all. And I would have loved to have seen this movie where Michael Michael Myers was just a name that was bandied about, right? Right. That people talked about and we never saw him. I also like that it is, do you know the movie that I really want to see now? I want to see David Gordon Green's version of Badlands. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to see Corey and Allison going off, leaving that town and seeing all the shit that happens because of it. Right. I mean, that to me seems so I mean, that would be so compelling because the, I mean, there is this question of why don't we leave these traumatic places? Why doesn't why haven't Allison and Lori left this city in this in Haddonfield? Again, it feels like some kind of like. Strip mall town, right? Except for this blowtorch right. of a radio station, which <laughs> I keep coming back to because it's so it's kind of fascinating. But but yeah, why do we stay in these places that have been the scene of so much trauma? What is the draw? Why can't we move on? Why can't we let go? But I think that's something that the movie's trying to get to. Agreed. agreed. And it would be more interesting right, to see Allison and Corey, two people traumatized in this town taking that experience outside of the town and sort of dealing with that in, I mean, violent ways. I think the people, reason people don't leave is because they all work for the mental hospital there where Michael was stationed. Oh, okay. And, and so we have to stay close we have to, to stay the trauma. Close. I mean, the trauma right. pays us. Exactly. It's, it's our livelihood. We, we make our living on trauma. <laughs> it, I almost wish that they had have just gone really hardcore with this and and gone full on prestige horror using Michael Myers as as a baseline for all of the things that they were trying to say rather than trying to, again, have a have a movie where, oh, man, it's really cool when he stabs him through the eye or push, you know, or, or rips his head off or, you know, when you hear the squish of his brain like, <laughs> when he stomps on his. Right. Yeah. Right. As opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to what they did now. But, but, but yeah, I, I think, like I said, it'll be interesting to see how it all goes yeah, out. Yeah. One thing about the ending, I thought it was kind of hokey, but I do think they had to come back to this idea of that collective fury, that collective mob mentality in kills is resolved with a kind of collective destruction of Michael Myers and then a, a, a kind of communal healing. Or, right. or perceived communal healing because right, everybody right. is there to see, um, and then and then we flash on the mask that's still on the table at the end yeah, of the movie, which again, yeah. it, it's it's it, I think again, and it's I don't think that's necessarily a, a setup for a sequel or anything like that. I think it's a, I think it's a nice thing where it lingers, right? It's just it's one of these things that's always there. Evil is always here, right? Yeah, th- so this evil is gone, but there's always this other. So back to our movies. I think I was the last one to pick the movie. So we're back on our five spooky. We got five more spooky movies to talk about. I'm going to let you choose the next one. We speak okay. Of. Okay. Pick well. <laughs> oh, cure. Oh, cure. All right. I, 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 I love this movie. I love this director. This movie has just entered into the criterion collection. If you're into those kind of things, I know some people aren't, but 
what the fuck ever. <laughs> I, I think they're kind of awesome. Quick note on this director. Do you know this director at all? Or how much do you know? Um, I'm sorry, Kyosho Kurosawa. I am familiar with Pulse. I've seen, okay. so I, I was really big into J-horror when it, when it had its kind of uh, reckoning. So Because Cure, I mean, Cure in a way Set this started off, that. I mean, right. And it was, I'm not sure, does it get categorized under J-horror or does it sort of act as the influence or sort of precursor to things like The Ring and, and Grudge, the, yeah, the Japanese you, originals. Ring comes so quickly after like Curse. 98? So 98. So yeah. Curse is 97, Ring is 98. Ring hits so hard Yeah, that I don't think... It, it doesn't fall into the same J-horror because you're not dealing with a ghostly entity necessarily. Right, right. You're also not dealing with a kind of a small child who's trying to tor- torment yeah. her. Yeah. So I think a lot of, I think a lot of the themes are there, but it doesn't, it, you know, it never got an American remake. It, it never really surfaces once, once you have, once you have ring and you have the, you know, the ring one miss call pulse, all these other ones that have sequels. And, and, uh, so I think it kind of gets left behind, yeah. even yeah. though it's the kind of the grandfather of them all. He started off writing pink films or, or directing pink films, mm-hmm. which was like Japanese softcore. I just find <laughs> <laughs> that fascinating. He just won the silver lion for directing it. Well, last year's Berlin, uh, festival for Wife of a Spy. I have not. Um, Has that yeah. been made its way stateside yet? It's on Mubi. Okay. Um, I know we've discussed that you don't have Mubi. <laughs> I don't have um, Mubi. I, I do have Mubi. Because um, <laughs> I'm a jackass and I just, I'm like, <laughs> well, it's 10 bucks. I don't care. Right, I'll right. Just, but it's like every month. And, and most of the time on Mubi, I just add things to the queue without fully watching. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but no, I have... Wife of the spy, wife of a spy just hit movie. Okay, um, not too long ago. So, so give us a breakdown that. of what Cure is about. <sighs> Good luck. Okay, okay. So essentially, this is the Japanese God told me to. By the it, way, no, exactly. It really is. It's it's perfect in how it matches up with that. I have that in my notes. So <laughs> <laughs> there are a series of murders taking place in which the victims have all had an X carved into their throat. It's not necessarily the the means of death, but it's, it's often post-mortem that the ex's car entered it. So the killers are always found nearby. Maybe they're hiding, but they never tend to run. And they have no recollection of, of the murder. And no real motive or reason. So a kind of world-weary detective, Takabi, who has a mentally ill wife at home a, a, a wife at home who's struggling in some way yes never really explained um, and, it, and it's not at least apparently never f- not not physical but we do see her she always comes in and starts the washer with nothing in it right it's almost so, like she has dementia, dementia right right except she's 35 right right so Takabi's charged with investigating these murders and let's see Oh, right, right, right. So this has that kind of same connection that God told me to. Um, Takabi, with with a psychologist partner, another cop named Sukuma, eventually figures out who's who's responsible. They're having all these conversations, but they, they eventually come across this guy whose name is Mamiya. And he has extreme short-term, mem- short, short-term memory loss, and he's really fucking annoying about it, <laughs> especially to Takabi. Takabi, like, loses his shit at one point and, and is going to just go after him. But he always asks people to tell them, tell him about themselves. And so even, even our detective, even Makabi. So it turns out that Mamiya was a student of psychology and of mesmerism and hypnosis. He doesn't have any 
real memory problems, right? He's just this master of, of hypnosis and of hypnotizing people and, and planting suggestions uh, in their minds, using repetitive sounds, asking the same question over and over. He uses his lighter a lot, right? Look, look at this lighter, right? Look at the flame, sometimes water, right? dripping of water. And that's how he gets people to, to kill whoever he wants or to plant the suggestion of killing these people he wants. So do you think that, that it's who he wants to, that he wants them to kill them or is it he's unlocking? Okay. No, 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 this is a, this is a good question because it's never clear, right? I, no, I think, you want to know what I, what I so Absolutely, I, yeah. I think that what he's doing is letting people access those thoughts and impulses that they know they shouldn't do, but they still want to. So I don't necessarily think he's saying, oh, I want you to kill this person as much as he is saying, yeah, act on these things that you're not supposed to act on, right? Act on these, because he says to the doctor, he, he, He's taken to the hospital and a female doctor is, is treating him. And he says to this doctor, he asks her why she isn't a surgeon. And she kind of gives a vague answer about not being able to, I guess, like um, operate on a cadaver. And he says something about, but don't you want to slice open a man? And then we see this woman in a public restroom cutting off the face right, of, very, of a very, man. Yeah. So there is that kind of suggestion of, I want you to commit violence, but because this is also what you want to do, even though you're not supposed to act on these things. Right. I think, so f the way that I took all of this, and I, I want to dig into this because there's, and, it's, and kudos to the, the, the explanation because that, that was not easy to do. No. <laughs> and, and, and if you go and watch this movie, it is not as straightforward as that. It's very, it's, it's very back and forth. You're going to lose yourself in different characters. It's it, it it jumps around and it, it asks a lot of the viewer. And we get these weird visions too. So at one point Takabi takes his wife to a mental hospital and they're on the bus, but this bus is like in the clouds and surrounded by smoke, which could imply a, a kind of dream, a kind of fantasy, or just a stylistic choice, but you don't know. Right. You also get like intersperses of Takabi seeing himself reach for a knife with the implication being he's going to attack or harm his wife. He has visions of seeing his wife like having committed suicide. So, but you, they just kind of sit there and they, and they, there's no explanation offered. A lot of times they're never even returned to. Right. Yeah. Right. To me, what M Memori is wanting these, I, I think it ties into what the title of the movie, which is cure, which is he is alleviating them of whatever is causing them, is holding, whatever the, he, whatever they think is holding them back. And of course it's, it's taken to extremes, right? But all of them are acting out on some sort of trauma. And again, trauma may be too, too strong of a word, but, but something that is holding them back within their own lives. So the cop, when the two cops kill, when the two, when, when one cop kills the other cop, it's because he's been passed over for, for a promotion. And I may be mis misremembering all of well, these details. He also says, I just hated him. Right, yes, I also- <laughs> He's just, annoying. Right. He just says he's annoying. Right? But Takabi clearly, has had these feelings about his wife and he feels obligated to take care of her. He, he clearly loves her, but he also understands that his life grossly would probably be easier or his mm -hmm. wife not to be in it anymore. This ties into God told me to, because the Takabi comes across 
the hypnotism portion of it almost on his own, out of nowhere. And like he starts to ask about hypnotism well before it's actually introduced, or even where he worked in a number more, he was actually using the lighter in, in a sense. And they're having this conversation. He and Sakuma, the psychologist, keep having this conversation about why do criminals commit these acts? Why do people kill people? And the psychologist at one point is like, who knows? Right. Sometimes, Sometimes they just people, people just do. And he's like, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. And then he has that question. Do you think someone could have told them to do this? Right. And so that it ties into the Ted LoBianco where like you're almost in, in God told me to where he is clearly tied to this person in some way. And potentially is also like this person or could be like this person given a different set of circumstances, but that's why he's drawn to one of these killings and is obsessed with them and can't get past trying to figure out why they're happening. You even have the same kind of meat cute, right? And <laughs> yes, cure that yeah. you do when God told me and God told me to where Takabe goes to see Mamiya in his cell and Mamiya says something like, Oh, you're different or like you're special. And, and yes, he makes yeah. these comments of like, okay. Right. And he sees yeah, himself there and then they become, and then Mamiya shows him his underarm vagina and it all just, it all, <laughs> it all connects. Cure is a sequel. And then but by the end of it too, Takabe becomes just like Ted Lobianco, Lobianco's character, in that he almost takes the place of, or gets completely consumed by all of this in a in a way that, well, okay, I want to talk about the ending. Yeah, sure. Because the ending is, is, is really cool and really fucking ambiguous. <laughs> so Takabi tracks Mamiya down. After, so Mamiya gets arrested, Mamiya escapes. Takabi tracks Mamiya down. There's a lot of suspension of disbelief in this film. How did he get here? How did he get there? It doesn't matter. Right. right? So Takabi tracks him down and basically just, just murders Mamiya, just shoots him. And before Mamiya dies, he makes this X with his finger in front of Takabi. Takabi finds in, in Mamiya's sort of psycho barn this old phonograph recording of of a voice that is meant to be sort of like what hypnotic instructions i i think it's kind yeah. of yeah it's it's very it's very ring-esque right where you find this old right. recording and there was where, that old videotape that that sakuma had found right. who it was like the first person practicing japanese mesmerism right like, that's weird they would be on vhs but cool okay <laughs> they were very advanced technolo but, but, technologically but speaking. again so um Takabi just shoots Mamiya. Apparently there's no repercussion for it. And then the last scene of the film, we see, oh, after that, we see um, Takabi's wife in the mental institution and she's been killed and she has the X cut in her throat. We see Takabi at, at a diner, at a restaurant, having coffee, speaking on the phone, telling someone to bring the car around, which it seems, seems like a new predicament. Right. And he speaks to the waitress, like pays his bill. She goes off. And the last thing we kind of see is her picking up a knife and walking towards someone as if to attack that person. And that's that's it. Right. right. Yeah. And so this idea of like what just happened, what the last person she talked to was our guy Takabi. What's going on? What are we what are we meant to sort of take away from that? Yeah, this movie is so, so good. I, it, I fucking it, love this movie. It's. <laughs> And it, again, it's one of those ones I would almost say you're going to love it 
the second and third time, fourth time you watch it, where you've, where you've allowed yourself to live in this environment, live in this world for a while and not have to really try to figure out everything, right? You're not trying to like look for the little nuances because that last scene, the first time you see it, you're like, I was just like, okay, am I missing something in the corner of the frame? Or like, what's going on here? Like, oh, oh shit, I know the movie's almost over because I can see the timer going, but I, I have no idea what's going on. And then by the time you, you've seen it over and over again, you just kind of let that wash over you and let the implications Again, it's it is a infinitely better film than God told me to. Like the whole <laughs> Ted Bianco, why did There's you kill people? Why did you yeah. kill people? God told me to. It's so. But anyway, the cure is so so good, and and it really is. I mean, like I said, it, it's such a. If you if you are a fan of those other films, this one is heads and shoulders above those. And, and not to denigrate any of those, I would say no. Pulse is really good. I like I like Pulse a lot. I like. I mean, Pulse is almost prescient in its kind of technological malaise that right. we've fallen into. Yeah. I, I think it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, These are my favorite types of quote unquote horror movies. I don't really. This to me, this is so atmospheric, so moody, so oh god, artsy. Right. I mean, it really but, is. And it, that is what I love about it. I so many things are implied. There's not a lot of exposition. Stuff just sits there and it says to you, like, go ahead, try to figure me out. Fine. You know, it, it, it kind of makes sense why this was never like targeted for an American remake, because you can't really hyper, you know, you can't like elevate any of this to make it where it's in your face. No. Whereas you could the ring and, and I will say that Gorbinski did a really good job of of Americanizing the ring. I think that was one both of, of those movies. Yeah, they were still out. Yeah. Um <laughs> I saw Ringu in a midnight screening at the Magnolia over in Dallas and it was when the Asian Film Festival For the was Asian just, Film Festival. And yeah. like it, <laughs> dude, I was crawling out of my chair when she came out of the TV. <clears throat> that was I I watch it at home and I'm still just, scared. I mean, I start looking behind doors and I turn lights on. <laughs> I'm a grown ass man in his own home. Scared. Yeah. Did you read anything about how the Tokyo sarin attacks had affected their industry? And like, no. th- th- so there was a whole, um, I don't get the name wrong, but there was a whole set of sarin attacks in Tokyo underground in in, the, in their in their subway systems right. in, in the ni- in 1995 by this like religious cult essentially. Right. I I remember that in the news. And then a lot of these films kind of speak to that general oh shit why would someone do this right what was the motivation this horrid attack on innocent people why would this happen and it it, it a lot of people have written about how the the sarin attacks kind of informed the pop culture and a lot of the films that were made right afterwards were were based on kind of that general feel of of horror that that makes a lot of sense especially asking the question of like why like what is the point of doing this and then also further connects to god told me to <laughs> right exactly <laughs> it all, so god it told all, me to influence the tokyo sarin attacks which then created queer influence cure. and honestly i mean it's good cinema, so yeah, it's, it's can great. we point fingers? Yeah, no, I love this. Pick something. All right, we're going to pick right. something. And the next one, ooh, I love this movie. And the next movie is Time Crimes by Nacho Vigilato. <laughs> okay, can I, so I didn't tell you this when you gave me the list, but I had seen this before. But I didn't want to say anything because I wanted to watch it again because I have always been like, what the fuck? Like in the best way, in the <laughs> best way. Because I, yeah, so take it away. Take it away. Yeah, you're going to have so to. I have... Like, can I just tell you my notes on this? Yeah, please. Here's my notes. Grandfather paradox. <laughs> the scariest, most dangerous thing in the world is confronting yourself, seeing and experiencing the consequences of your own. <laughs> I'm just like, but I don't know. 
I and, and and so if we learn anything about me over the course of this podcast, <laughs> I want it to be that I fucking love time loop movies, man. I yeah, love okay, them so okay. much. <laughs> like I don't know if you can even have a bad one. I, I just it it it, it they're you're so just, you're they're in so anytime fun. there's like messing with time, you're just in. So we are dropped in on this. A Spanish couple, and they are moving things within their house. Looks like they've just got a new house. They're doing some renovations. Some renovations, right? And you know, they're just a typical Spanish couple. You know, they have sex in the middle of the day. Looks like they're retired, kind of like. <laughs> but that's what siesta means, <laughs> <laughs> right? The way they'd ever come to understand it is that that's what that means. But the man, his wife is going off to do some errands. The man is just sitting in his nice yard, and he picks up his. A set of binoculars and just to look out across the expanse of his estate. And and most likely he's probably looking for animals. It's the countryside. So he's just he's just enjoying the afternoon. And he sees this woman who is attractive and starting to undress topless. And that and that's really about it. Right. I mean, that's and at some point he gets distracted he comes back and he sees through those lenses again that the woman is now laying down she's now look appears to be unconscious so being the good citizen that he is he goes off and then sets upon this uh he, he goes off to find the woman to make sure that she's okay and he comes across this uh person who is in bandages oh, he stabbed first Oh, it was the, okay. Because he, go, he goes, like, he sees the the woman who's now completely naked, unconscious, and he's like, "Oh, are you okay?" And then, right, that and then, person, and then the person in the band stabs, stabs him. Scissors, the, right. And so he's starting to run away, and it just sets off this 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 series of events where it all turns out that he has his estate is next to some sort of experimental science lab that is working on time travel and or something to that extent and one of the lower level lackeys at that at that science lab knows that he won't be around to see the full the time travel experiment so he decides to do it on his own about a week before they're actually scheduled to do it and he, he catches this poor man in a time loop and so and while he is while he's running away from the man with bandages who stabbed him, he runs upon the, 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 the science lab. The science technician, who's the director of the film, by the way, has the man get into the time travel device and hide from the man in the bandages. Well, it turns out that the man in the bandages is actually himself. So he stabbed himself and through a series of events there's ends up being three to four to five and his name is Hector and his name is Hector and And so he refers to Hector number one Hector number two Hector number three it it, it, so as the first 20 minutes of this movie you think it's going to be a horror film because a lot of the elements of when he sees the man in bandages um, you know show up it is a very startling image and he gets stabbed and the the girl has been you know she's appears she's totally naked she appears to have been you know molested and, and at least knocked out and killed even though we find out later that that's not actually the the, th- the case and then it becomes this kind of comedy of errors where he tries to recreate all the things that he's come across and then try to fix the things now and again try to fix the things that he's that he's caused while he's trying to correct everything that he's that, that he's also damaged in the timeline you know it turns out that his uh the girl ends up 
falling off of his roof. There's a whole series of things that happens and it's just, it just piles upon one another and one another and one another. And it's so much damn fun. This movie is so good. And again, I don't almost like it. it, It's, I don't want to like give too much away. I mean, although we'd kind of given it away, but, but, but honestly that happens so quickly and you can kind of see that that's going to happen pretty straight away. Right. It, It is so much fun watching this, watching Hector try to undo the wrongs that he's done and then just further getting himself it's stuck in the mud. It, there's an episode of The Simpsons where they go to the La Brea tar pits and Homer gets stuck in the La Brea tar pits and he's like, I'm going to try to pull my feet out with, he's, he's like, his feet are in the in the tar. He's like, I'm going to try to pull my feet out with my hands. And his hands get stuck. <laughs> it's and, it's like, and now I'm going to try to pull my hands out with my face. And he just shoves his face into the <laughs> And this is that in it's a nutshell. complicated and make everything is what this movie right. is. <clears throat> it is so much fun. It is, it is so much fun. And, and you're right. They, they get to the reveal, I think, pretty quickly. Yeah, within but, the first 15, it, 20 minutes. And it's not really the point. It doesn't matter. No, I mean, what, what what matters is the is the why that comes next or, or all the things that come next. And I I mean, the ending of this film, too, where he just sits down and tells his wife, don't don't worry, we've got, just, just stay right there. We've got time. <laughs> right, right. You know, and then we see everything else starting to sort of go back around, go back into that loop. It's... I have no idea what what the movie is trying to speak to or try, but also like I don't care. I don't care. It's just so much fun. Um, Did you happen to see his follow up, The Colossus with the oh yeah with yeah. and uh, uh, Anne Hathaway? And, and, yeah, Anne Hathaway. Right, where they are controlling these monsters when they're in this sort of playground sand pit. These monsters yeah, across, across the, the world. world, right? Yes, yeah. I um, actually got to meet him at a screening of that movie. Oh, cool! Uh, and I was like, I was gushing about time crimes, and I was like, God, this was. I mean, I like, I like this movie. I'm, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of time crime. I mean, he was kind of like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> like boy, don't, at that point, that would have been seven, eight years ago. Yeah, from yeah. in between Colossus, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, yeah, and again, so highly recommend Time Crimes. It's such a fun movie and so like silly and and just so much fun to. I also, but I, I I do love Hector's kind of change throughout the film. By the end of it, he is almost a stoic about this. He's just, this is what I have to do. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to sit down and accept it and see what happens next. It's, it, you know, but at the beginning, he's like, I have to go kill that version of me that's with my wife this is ridiculous and of course that just leads to all the shit but oh it's so much fun all right next movie. okay road games all right had you did you know about this film before I, yeah, okay yeah yeah okay so this comes up because because tarantino was one of the like a big champion of this movie so it and it has such a great iconic vhs and cover and poster the, the poster's great the poster's so fantastic it, it's it's it taps into all of the that type of you know, that type of just kind of B movie thriller horror kind of thing, and and it's like I said, so yeah, I I'd seen this. Before. Okay, 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 because I hadn't. It came up so before we made before we made these lists, it, it showed up on on Criterion, and I was like, oh, my camera. I'm always a, I'm always down to check out 
Stacy Keach because of Mickey Splain's Mike Hammer was on TV when I was a kid. So, but I'll always look and see what else. He's our parents, Joaquin Phoenix, basically. Yes. No, you're right. right. Aside um, from the cleft palate, he's also just not attractive enough to be a leading man. But somehow he, but somehow kills he does. It. He's always he's always he's so, so interesting, good in so good. Oh, he's great in this film. One thing, I, I and again, I'll, I'll let you describe sure. it here in a second. But I, but before I lose this thought. Keach and Curtis are amazing in this movie, and I want to watch a hundred more movies with those two people in them. Absolutely, it, it, it is. It is like you go back, and it's very easy to dismiss Jamie Lee Curtis's career, especially up to that point where she's look. She's been a box office draw. She's killing it as a, as a final girl, and she's like the horror scream queen. Yeah. But man, she's so good in this. She's so self assured in this. Just. And their chemistry. Yeah. When they're in the crazy. truck together. It's great. And it's crazy that like Keach is killing it as well. Like he's just like he I mean, this is a one man show for the majority of this movie. And a lot of it, it's he's funny, he's dynamic, he's engaging. He's that seventies kind of like machismo where he's not built, but he's big enough to like throw a kick and a punch or two. Yeah. But he's just also just enough to get away. Right. Yeah. But he's also kind of like doughy and also kind of mm-hmm. dumb in a mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. But very much, very much. Just smart enough to know like, wait, something's not right, but not smart <laughs> enough to really figure everything out. I mean, it's very sort of seventies, early eighties too, the way they talk about women, the way they talk about other people. I mean, just, just the kind of language right. around everything. So, okay. So Stacy Keach is this truck driver, semi truck driver named Quid, and he's in r- rural Australia. There's two things going on. There's a butcher strike and there's someone killing women. <laughs> right, right around, Those two around. things typically Those go hand two in hand. Things. And yes, yes, they do. So Quid, Stacy Keach drives around with his pet dingo named Boswell and oh, so they pull into to to a city. Stacy Keach is tired, wants to find a motel, but the last room has been taken up by this man in a green van, who has a woman along with him. This woman was a hitchhiker that Keach had seen on the road before, but he's not allowed to pit, pick up hitchhikers, right? Company policy. Anyway, so he has to sleep in the truck with Boswell. He gets uh, a call from the office. He's got to go pick up another load of, like, you know, dead hogs in a refrigerated <laughs> truck. As one does. As one does. Uh, Boswell, the dog, is sniffing at these garbage bags outside the motel in the morning. And Keach notices that the man from the green van is paying too much attention to what his dog is, is, is doing. Then on his way to Perth with his load of meat, right, Quid passes by a bunch of different characters who exist really just kind of as obstacles to him kind of overcoming, you know, to him to overcome on the road as he is in a way like pursuing this van. Also, they're just kind of ridiculous, funny characters as well. Right, yeah. They're very 70s, yeah, out of the blue. They're they're the typical people you would find in a 70s movie. They're obnoxious, they're loud, they're they're painted with a really broad brush. There's pains in the asses, (laughs) right? right? I mean, this this movie is funny. I mean, there are just funny moments the, the entire time. A lot of it, a lot of what he says, a lot of the 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 dialogue that that Stacey Keach has is is genuinely funny. I mean, just yeah. laugh out loud funny. So he's on the road and he sees the man from the van on the side of the road bearing garbage bags, and he's got this like cooler with him, right? And so Keach starts to ask questions, wonder what's going on. Like this is okay. This is a couple times I've seen this guy, and he starts to pursue the van, but it too far and it gets away. 
So he eventually decides to pick up Jamie Lee Curtis, who's been hitchhiking, um, even though it's against company policy. Her name is Pamela, but they quit. Stacy Keach calls her Hitch because she's a hitchhiker. It's so cute, right? And so yeah, and this is their meet cute right on the side of the road. So they talk, they get to know each other, they talk about the serial killer in the van, and then they eventually encounter the van again at a service station. Jamie Lee Curtis, Pamela, decides to go sneak into the van because they think that the man is in the bathroom. And so Keach is going to go confront the man in the bathroom. She's going to go get evidence. But it turns out the man is asleep in the van and wrangles and captures Jamie Lee Curtis. There's some poor guy who's riding a motorcycle that's in the bathroom that Stacy Keach has like some kind of tire iron, I don't know, some metal object that he's gonna hit him with and his dingo. Right. <laughs> so this guy's just like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Of, of how long they spoke about this 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 plan, it's very it's a, poorly executed. Not, it's terrible, right? It's a terribly executed plan. So he jumps back in his truck and he goes after the van. And as he catches- well, first the, off, he, he wrecks the guy's motorcycle. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he wrecks the guy. He jumps. He steals the guy's motorcycle, wrecks it, gets back, right? Jumps in the truck, <laughs> telling everyone to get away, get away with his, with his dingo. And he starts to chase after the van. And when he catches up to the van, he sees what he thinks is Jamie Lee Curtis in the passenger seat enjoying herself. And he starts to mutter and mumble things to his dog as a man would who's just been rejected. Right. And he thinks he's second guessing he, himself that this guy's actually a murderer right, and that right. Jamie Lee Curtis was always just putting him on and, and this was a whole thing. And then a lot. And as this drive progresses, he's going towards Perth with with, with his with his load. Something interesting happened in the film where he stops talking out loud and we get like internal monologue. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite understand that because the dog's right there. Just keep talking to the dog. But it was an interesting shift. There is a scene in this movie that go, that is very beautiful mind where you start seeing the calculations in his head start crossing over. And, and, and it's really just lines on the road. But it, I could not help but think yeah. of like Russell Crowe and like the, the or in his head. Yeah. Or Galifianakis <clears throat> in, in Hangover where all these things are just passing through. Or Ben Affleck in The Accountant when he writes on the windows with the marker. Right. Right. <laughs> it's the same thing. But it, it was right. so like it was so f- that that scene was so funny to me because it was because you're right. It was a like you, he pulls back inward and is just like, hmm. hmm. And you start seeing all the, the roads start going across the right. screen. <laughs> yes. He, he kind of comes back to this idea that no, wait, maybe she is in trouble or this guy might have killed her because, oh, that's right. He, the, his back door of the trailer, the tractor trailer, had been open and is banging, you know, against the truck. And so he stops and he's like, wait, did I lock that? Did I not lock that? So he thinks that this guy put something in there, more specifically put her in there. Mm -hmm. So he then chases after him again. He finally catches up to this guy and chases the van through the streets of Perth with the cops chasing him. And he catches up to the guy. They get in this fight and he starts to strangle this guy with with the guitar string, you know, Garrett that that he'd He'd been killing women with. And the cops, of course, think that Stacy Keach think that our man quit is the killer because previously he had been accosted by all of the townsfolk that That's he'd right. already like so the people already that pisses the, off because he's American and has a dingo right the people that he met across along the way especially when he stole the, the motorcycle now the cops are basically after him so the yeah. cops pull up on this scene they see him trying to kill what appears to be just another Australian and they draw their guns on him while the killer starts to slowly slink starts into to the slip background. away 
Boswell are dingoes barking, right? Which Stacey Keach was like, whoa, he can bark because dingoes aren't supposed well, to yeah, bark. Dingoes which can't is bark. Great, right? So is barking at the van and they find Pamela wrapped up in a sleeping bag. And she's like, no, you idiots. It's that guy, right? <laughs> right. Pamela almost doesn't understand why they're arresting him. Right. And like, right. that like almost what are you doing? And it's like, you, you, that whole scene, you, you clearly, you've seen these movies before. You want this to, you want this to be resolved because it's a tension building scene. Yeah. And you're, so, you're like, okay, come on, just come say on, something. You just know, say just, it. Would you just get say to it? it? Yeah. And then, but she's so like pissed at, 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 at Quid, right? Because, at <laughs> right. You said he was in the bathroom. I mean, they argue about that. <laughs> this movie is it is so funny and silly, and it's I. It, it's not really horror, but it's a different kind of like Hitchcockian slow burn right. thriller. It's it's rear window on a semi truck, right? I Absolutely. Mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So much fun. Yeah. It, and I think that's what Franklin set out to make, to be quite honest, is that he had seen, I, I, I watched a couple things about him okay. and he had seen that. And that was kind of the premise is that he had some money and that that was, what if we did this and kind of set that on there? Um, yeah, this was at the time, the would this kind of set off the whole Ozploitation uh, movement, if you will. So every, all these kind of genre films that, and, that were made in Australia were, that that's basically they're all called exploit you know OZ exploitation films and, and, and sort of like the Australian new wave is I mean sure right? absolutely right. Um, Franklin would have a couple of, before we go into him the, uh, there's a couple of scenes that were just like one didn't make any sense to me whatsoever <laughs> when Keach and again this didn't have a short running time that you needed to put filler in this <laughs> no. was an hour and forty so there was a, there was some there was some movement there but <laughs> when they're driving through the alley and so Keach has got his semi and he's barely making it through this oh, alley. Right. And the cops are chasing him. There's a scene where a guy walks out into the alley to see what the commotion is, and his glasses fall off. And then, the, and then the semi drives over his glasses. He reaches back, he reaches back down, and then has to stand back up. And the cops drive over his glasses. And it's just, and and that guy, you don't know who that guy is. No. You never see him ever again. You haven't seen him before. You don't see him again. But that was just a thing where, okay, there's just of, out of all the destruction that happens in this movie, where Quit actually blows up a guy's boat like he drives into he drives his boat through the boat destroys well, the guy won't get out of the way i mean <laughs> right. he's like blocking right. him because he's trying to get to the van but he won't get out of the way yeah this movie is funny it <clears throat> it, it is really like i said but beside the fact that it's got two amazing leads it's i, I think it's really really well shot and well done the opening yeah. murder is so stylistic and so beautifully shot yeah that it really almost sets you up for a different kind of movie. It, that's almost, it was very De Palma-esque, that first like opening scene. And you kind of expect it to take itself a little bit more seriously. It, it really is a nice way to kind of lull you into, okay, well, I'm getting prepared for a, a duel or a, you know, a breakdown type of film and, and, and really kind of pulls back a little bit and allows you to breathe and allows you to have fun with, the, with, with these characters. But still wonder what's going to happen. I mean, I think he does, he still does a nice job of building that tension oh, within moments, right? With then, but, because by the time you do get, I mean, like, yes, you know that murders are happening, but I, I, you know, you do actually, and these films do this a lot where they kind of pull the rug out from underneath you where maybe the green van isn't the one who's killing all right. these. It could have very easily taken a left turn and something else was doing it. The, you know, the, the old lady or what, and her husband or what have you, or the, or the, uh, the motorcycle guy. Could well, in the, in the old lady that he ends up picking up because she forces him to stop. I mean, she starts to have questions about him. Mm -hmm. There's one moment where e even though she sees the guy digging on the side of the road too, 
she wonders if Quid, if Stacey Keach isn't the killer and runs away from him and, and almost falls off a cliff. Right. And dies. And then she blames him like, for like listen. pushing him off, of, almost pushing right. her off of a cliff. Right. When he was trying to help her. So, yeah, I, 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 the tension is still there and it just kind of comes and goes, which I think makes it even more enjoyable. Frank. So this was directed by Richard Franklin. This he went on to direct uh, Psycho 2, uh, Cloak and Dagger. And then he did he did Patrick, which was another kind of Australian horror film. And he did this great it really wasn't great. He did this movie that had a naked Elizabeth Shue in it. Not you couldn't see anything, but she was naked anyway, called Link. It was about a oh. it was like it was an ape um, horror film where she's like oh. doing something with a gorilla. And uh, <laughs> it's a terrible movie, but it was one as a, as a young man enamored with Elizabeth and, Shue. And I rented quite a bit because but, because we've all seen adventures in babysitting. And of course we yeah. have many more times than I should <laughs> care to admit. Right, right. But Psycho 2, I will say this about Psycho 2. And Cloak and Dagger is a Henry Thomas, Gap, Dabney Coleman, mm-hmm. filmed in San Antonio. Uh, really, really fun kids movie. If you if you have younger kids. It's, Watch it's, that with war games. Like, pair yeah, those things back it's, together. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's really a lot of fun. <clears throat> Psycho 2 sounds on its surface like a horrible, horrible idea. Why would you ever make a sequel to a Hitchcocking thriller? Psycho 2 is a, serv- a, ver- a more than serviceable horror f- yeah. thriller um, that that backs up Psycho. In fact, it focuses way more on Anthony Perkins and his psychosis. And, and it, the, the story is, is that he's finally getting out of the mental institution now that he's uh, you know after the events of Psycho and he's trying to come back. And it is really, really well done. So check that one out. Okay. <laughs> All right, it's my turn. Yeah. I think I already looked at this one. We did. We looked. At, I, we needed to wad these up and do a better job of. Uh, what? What? Next time you can write things on uh, <laughs> little pieces of legal paper. Okay. The next movie is Good Night, Mommy. Good Night, Mommy. Do you want to know my opening notes for that? Sure. Vibes, man. <laughs> Fucking vibes. So, Good Night, Mommy, and this is the 2014 um, Austrian version, not the 2022 American version, which we will talk about. I don't want to. We don't have to talk about it, is what I meant to say. (laughs) I'll make a couple comments. So, we find ourselves in this house where these two young boys are playing and where they're playing in the field and they get along great. And, and, but they're, they're twin boys. They're pretty much tied at the hip. They seem to be on their own. I I think that their dad was there at one point um, with them at the house. And then they, he, so do we ever see the dad in this version? I don't think we ever see the dad dad in this version. At one point, the mom explains to some people asking for food, big, food bank donations or Red Cross donations that there was an accident with the father or something. I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I think because in the American version, we see him like right away. Right. And I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) So we see two young boys playing in this house. And then all of a sudden their, their mother comes back. So apparently they've been living there with, with by the, on their own or with their father and their father leaves while while the mom comes back. But she comes back and she has bandages all over her face. And it's this awkward kind of interaction between these two groups, the, the twins and the mom, trying to get back into the groove of being twins and moms. And there's the mother 
comes in and she's just had some sort of surgery, some sort of procedure to her face. And so she's clearly in some pain. She's clearly in discomfort. And so she's asking the boys to, you know, to keep it down, to not go outside, to only play in the yard. Um, keep the blinds drawn. To keep the blinds drawn and to not to make too much noise. Don't bring animals in. And all the while, the boys are... 12, 9, 8, whatever years. Yeah, they're boys. They're young boys who are rambunctious. <clears throat> they have a cockroach collection that they, they take care of. They, um, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they, they go out and they play hide and seek in the fields. They jump on the trampolines. And all the while, their mom, they're not able to get past their mom being a little bit short-tempered. Uh, um, she's, she's, seemingly upset with them all the time and so they come to the conclusion that the person in the mask is not their mom and they go about then torturing this woman <laughs> to make her tell them where their real mom is and that's that's the premise that we're set up with so really very quickly if you've seen the poster of this movie it is uh all in red and black and these boys are looking over you the viewer of this movie and, and basically they're in their mom's face demanding to know where their real mom is. So this becomes a very harrowing, just brutal horror film where you don't really know which side is right. right. And up until the full runtime, you don't know what happens or what is actually going on. You don't know, are the boys right and this is not their mother? Or is the mother right and, and she's just, you know, she's just upset for some reasons. And so we're going to ruin this. We're going to twist yeah, the movie because so, they really, they really wait till the end of this one before they. Yeah, this 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 is ten it, minutes before like the movie before ends. The ends, and we realize exactly what what had happened. So what? Yeah. So what it turns out is the reason that the mom was having the surgery, and the reason that she had been away is that there had been an accident and that one of the twin boys was killed in the accident. And the other twin had not ever come to grips with that and was still acting as if the twin was still there. So during the time of the movie, the one twin is saying, you know, I need you to talk to us. I don't know why you're not talking to the other twin. I need you to acknowledge all of us. And the mom gets increasingly, increasingly more agitated because she knows that there's only one boy there. Right. At but one point, the boy draws a picture and it's signed by from both of the boys. It has both the boys in the picture and the mom, you know, um, they're both, they're all holding hands. So this is a very, you, it is a gut punch the entire time. Yeah. You're watching this movie. It is very brutal. They're t she's tied up. They're, they're burning her with a, with like a magnifying <laughs> glass. They put roaches in her mouth. Although a lot of it is, so seen as like dream sequences or fantasy right. sequences. There's one sequence where the mom has it goes into the woods yeah. and takes off of her takes off her bandages, but you never see her face. And that's one of the things that the movie does really, really well, is that is that the mom is some sort of celebrity. She's like some sort of. She was like in a choir, right? She uh, th wasn't well, that, she a singer she, in a choir? I think that she was some sort of news anchor, right? Because okay. they because they do the twenty questions thing at the beginning of the film, and they're like asking. Uh, and it was like person, place, the thing. And she's got the sticky note to her head. And they're like, am I famous? You know, am I a person? Am I famous? Do I know right. you? Like, did, does she like animals? And they're like, oh, yeah, kind of. And like, do you know her? Yeah, you, you know, you know her pretty well. And but she never guesses that it's her. She was a choir member famous on local television. Okay. That's the name. That was it. I, I mean, look, I, Wikipedia can be edited by anybody. <laughs> Maybe I just edited that right now. <laughs> 
but but right. But there's pictures of her, and they're kind of in out of focus pictures yeah. of her on the and, wall. And so with you, you and of, with one of her friends who looks just like her, or looks enough like her that they're right. like, oh, and and wears similar clothes. And she has different colored eyes because of contacts, and they weren't aware of that. Right. So right. at the last ten minutes, the the you you understand what's going on and you've been giving you've been given hints throughout if they, they do like, a nice job of hiding it they, they do, do a really, really nice, job. nice job one of the things they do like when the boys are fighting with one another because what happens is is the boy that's dead his ghost or whatever you want to say it you know whatever his influence is on the other twin he starts to get upset because he's the, clearly the one being ignored and he doesn't want the other twin to believe that the mom is their mom. And so when they, they get into a fight, once they're done with the fight, they're both bleeding in the exact same place in the exact same manner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. They do a great, this it's whole movie really is, is, I mean, like I said, it plays its cards very close yeah. to the vest. It does not give up anything. And so by the time that you, it happens and you realize, okay, the twin is going to go into this and to, and to continue the illusion where he ends up killing the mother in the most brutal burning way possible. That is the, that is a horrid, horrid scene. It's hard to watch. It really is. And it really just kind of leaves you with that, that then the movie essentially ends. The mother is dead and the twins now live in this house essentially together. It is, it was, it's good. It's really, it's really good. It's, it's a hard watch. It's, it's good. It's moody and it's creepy and the kids are creepy and the mom is creepy and mean, but yet you understand exactly why she's frustrated. You never question, okay, she's only talking to what, I mean, moms who have just gone, through, well, moms in general will get upset at one sibling and then only talk to it. I mean, it all made sense to me being the oldest of five. Right. I, you know, I have seen these things kind of happen, not to this extreme, but it's like, Everyone's creepy, but everyone is pretty clear, I think, throughout. Again, this comes back to trauma and grief and how these people are handling it and dealing with it and not very well. Right. <laughs> right. And you and you and you look at the mother, you can clearly see that she's dealing with the loss of celebrity. She's dealing with the loss of a sense of herself. She, the loss of a son. Right. The loss of a son, most likely a loss of a husband in some sort of marriage way. in some way. Yeah. So it's it's very and and she's trying to keep together and to pretend for the son that's still around to allow him and provide him some grace and she simply can't do it and to the and and she does a fairly good job of it until she gets tied up in her bed and she can't <laughs> she can't, and she can't get away right, right. but but stylistically everything about this the house is so great the bandages are so great it never really aside from the the shaky head you know, scene out in the, out, but, but, which makes sense in context, never really goes too fantastical, really. Right. And, so, and anytime it does go fantastical, you, you assume as a viewer that this is what the kids are thinking, or this is what the twins imagine is going on. Right. Even if they, so even if the mom is going outside at night because the sun would hurt her skin and she just wants some fresh air, maybe they're like, oh, she's eating bugs or like, you know, right. Cause they're right. like 11, 10, I don't know. Um, yeah, they're boys. And so there's that imaginative aspect to it. And and it plays it so down the middle where you're like, okay, you can see both sides of it. The entirety of the entire, the entirety of the film, as you're watching it, you're going, you, you go back and forth, you go back and forth, just like the kids do. Okay. She's, 
yeah, clearly she's probably being too harsh. We right. don't know the entirety of it. But all. then also we, you're a brat. But yeah, these kids are kind of <laughs> shitty. Yeah. Like they're also, and then once it hits the point where they tied her up, you're like, oh shit, no, oh, this is getting this real. Is real. Like, this is what I didn't like about the American version. I I felt that the American version was just way was playing its cards right away, and it made for well, everything, maybe if I had seen that one first, but maybe I turned it off. But everything was so amplified. Right. And that's where we get into trouble with American remakes is that they don't the subtlety is all lost. And so my biggest problem with the remake is you shouldn't I would almost say you can't, but you should you shouldn't remake a film and have it be the same title. Right. And then have the same the, t- the twist be exactly the same. If if they had have done something different, if it I mean, if you had a new spin on it where maybe the twins didn't die or something happened altogether differently then i could then i can understand why you're doing it but every every design change that they made uh naomi watts's bandages weren't nearly as frightening right they were none too, of it was right none of it was frightening all of the actions taken by naomi, naomi watts then kind of led you to believe that she really wasn't the mother because she was kind of being ultimately bitchy and then there was that scene where she like pulls literally pulls her skin off and that was kind of over that's overdone so like everything that every move that the original made right and kept this down. One wrong. This one was terrible. It really was just. And again, once you've let the cat out of the bag, the only reason to watch is to see if they do something interesting with it. So, like, and again, these films weren't good. Uh, and I, you could even argue that the first one wasn't that great. Right. But I mean, but so, vibes. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, no, no, and I actually like. I mean, I'm just so like. There's another example of this where, like, the, in the most recent Pet Cemetery remake, which again, this this is not. They're not art house films. I get that. But they changed who died. They changed which child died. At least you're trying to do something different with the story. Subvert what we think we already know. Right. I don't because again, otherwise, just go Gus Van Sant and do a shot by shot remake and call in with American accents. Right. <laughs> because you did nothing to the, you did you brought nothing to the table for this film and it it and it and it and it, it really kind of diminishes the, the original because once you've seen this one, then you know what the you know the end is and. So that's a bad thing, right? And we're not going. <laughs> and 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 as Bong Joon Ho Bong Joon Ho Ho told us, right? We are allergic to two inch words on the bottom of the screen. Yeah, so, evidently. All right, let's let's talk about our last one, which is um, Kuroneko. Oh, we don't have to. We don't. Have to, I know. We don't have to pull the paper. And let's let's just do it briefly, and we'll move on to let the right one in. I think, uh, okay. unless you really want to dig into this, but. Um, yeah. One reason I put this on the list. It's because you're pretentious? Yes. Um, be, one, because I'm pretentious. I mean, that, well, most of my movies were kind of pretentious, weren't they? No, no, no. Yeah. They all, I like them all. Okay. I actually okay. really like them all. they can still be pretentious. <laughs> but one, so one reason I put this on the list was because of, of the beginning and because of the inciting event, right, where two women, a mother and, and her son's wife, live alone in this cottage in a bamboo grove. This is during feudal Japan. There's a civil war going on, so they're alone. The son, husband, is, is off fighting. And a troop of samurai come come by the house and end up raping and killing these two women and burn their house down. I know this isn't the first time this has happened in film. I think, you know, Bergman's The Virgin Spring comes to mind, and I'm sure there's others. But this is 1968. Right? This is four years before The Last House on the Left. Yeah, and those are, you know, similar kind of actions happening, but vastly different films. And I, I, this is something I find interesting in how these films kind of deal with that 
rape revenge story. Yeah, Craven didn't find his voice right no. away. Well, that, no, 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 but but, but, but no, no, I agree with you right. that it it is sixty eight is an interesting time, and again, it's this whole this is done with by today's standards pretty kid they're pretty much kid gloves right oh they, sure um but this idea especially coming in again i'm not a huge historian of japanese history at this particular point in time but i can't imagine that women were seen with a ton of agency especially when you're talking about, right and, and so this idea of two women who were then killing their own countrymen granted they did a horrible they they were treated horribly they all deserved <laughs> although right. at the end of the day the premise is these two women they are raped and murdered by this 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 troop of samurai they go to the underground make a pact with the devil and essentially they come back they're able to live on the earth but they have to kill every samurai That's that the they come across they and unfortunately they're Son, they're in the no son, the, the son, the son, and the husband, right? Um, well, I mean, yeah, they're the same person, right? Right, yeah. no, I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> no, I didn't no, mean, no, to, I mean. I didn't mean <laughs> to confuse the point. He ends up becoming a samurai through some good deeds, heroic, of his own, deed. heroic yeah. deeds, and then he is in he is tasked with hunting down these monsters who are killing samurai. And of course, the women now, then, of course, are troubled because they have to kill every samurai that they come across. And how or or live it? in hell forever. Right. And how right. do they do that with their right. son, who's been nothing but noble? <laughs> this movie's has an interesting history because it's not quite as well known as the other films, like Onibaba or, or the other ones that are right. in that same era. Right. This came out at Cannes in '68, and that was the year Cannes that got canceled. Cannes got canceled because of Truffaut the, and Mal and, uh, and riots. Goddard. That, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. They were basically protesting somebody on the board who got dismissed. Okay. And so this movie didn't come out in, in the U.S. till many, many, many years later, right. and to no fanfare. And also at that point, everyone had found Kurosawa and found all these. So they they already dove in. So a lot of the things that this film was doing with the wire work, which was really interesting and yeah. a whole lot of fun. Um, this is a quiet movie, even, even given the themes of what we're talking about, you know, the samurai are brought in, they're made, you know, they're usually, they got drunk, they're, they're given booze to get them drunk. And then they're, then they're off in some sort of unspectacular way. Right. By the time that, that you get to the last, you know, the, the husband, son, samurai, and there's the fight scenes, there, like I said, I think that, that was where I had the most fun with the movie was where they're kind of climbing up poles and like spinning around and and I, I um, and the when she turns when she actually turns into the cat and the samurai cuts the arm of the cat off. Th there's a lot. There's a there's a lot of beauty in this film. It's just it's so lush and how it it's, really the tones, the black and white tones, the contrast. Uh, I, I like the idea of it being a quiet film because it is a quiet film um, despite the themes. And it is on Criterion Channel as well. If you have not seen it, I would yeah. I would recommend it's it's like I said, it's easy. I mean, yeah. aside from having to read it, it's easy. So, you know, <laughs> right. Right. Um, anything else about Kurneko? I I really I really like no no no. I, I, it's, I don't. Know. I also think like Japanese directors, at least at this in this kind of period, but fifties sixties maybe a little further on did some of the best work of filmmakers in looking to the past to comment on on the present and what might lie ahead um, just for what that's worth. I mean, yeah, I, I, no. I mean, that's, that's not an original idea. Well, no, no, I mean, but, but, it, but this but, is a very progressive film for this time and you, and, right. and, and to set it when you set it, 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 it speaks 
to something that, yeah. that's there. I mean, and so I think it's a courageous move, even if, um, and again, I don't, I don't know how well it was received internally in Japan, but I mean, that, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I will say too, that these movies are an interesting contrast to what's actually being put out in America at this time. Because again, take take Last House on the Left. I mean, again, Last House on the Left is definitely a Forty Second Street kind of film where you're. I mean, it is grotesque in a lot of ways, and it's also ridiculously silly in a lot of ways. Of, of course, but I mean that 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 shift. I mean, nineteen set horror around nineteen seventy really shifts, doesn't it? Yeah, you're coming out of the Hayes Code with all of the, the late 60s films, and people were trying to really trying to find their... <clears throat> one, you're coming out of the Hammer era of horror, right? So you've got... You're kind of coming out of the... Vincent. Mike Hammer. Mickey Spillane. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, cutting back to that, do you think that, that Road Games <laughs> and the voiceover helped Keach get yes. the Mickey Spillane role? Yes. I think so. I think that was a direct... Like, I think that was a direct audition. <laughs> like, who do we know who do great voiceover? Stacey Keach. So, yeah, coming out of, like, the, the... Like I said, the Hayes Code, and then... And seeing all these films in the foreign area that were showing sex and blood and realistic violence and drug dealing and all these kind of things that were coming out horror dives directly into that and and so there's not a whole lot of subtlety in in american horror not even something like um rosemary's baby there's 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 things but they're not being made by american directors there's don't look now there's 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 movies that come out in that time frame but they're not being made in america okay so speaking of another we did do it we got through 10 of those and it only took us 17 combined hours (laughs) (laughs) we're very sorry (laughs) we'll be quick so speaking of other horror movies that are or foreign. Let's talk about Let the Right One In. And this this was screened at the Fil- Fort Worth Film Club this past Wednesday. <laughs> so let's try and build on this excellent conversation that we that we started. I don't know, where do you want to start with this one? The <clears throat> Yeah, where do I want to start with this one? Other than one? just how gorgeous it is. How let's start with the opening shot of the snow falling and how pretty that is there's so much to unpack in this movie yes and just okay so just to take a step back if you haven't seen the movie um really it is a coming of age story about about a young bullied boy named oscar who's 12 he's 12 12. years old he has no friends he lives with a single mother and his alcoholic father is not present he lives in this kind of they don't have a whole lot of money he lives in this what looks to be some sort of projecty type of kind of like cold war housing yeah. I mean, Sweden's close enough to the USSR at that time. I mean, th- I think there is that same kind of idea. Yeah, I don't set, know how communist Sweden was, right? Point, 82, right. yeah, suburbs of Stockholm. So I, I'm not sure I'm not sure historically how closely aligned with that kind of communism Sweden was, but y- you get the idea that that's what what it is. And and the entire town looks to be industrial, looks to be kind of blue collar, blue collar, not a whole lot of money. And Oscar is living alone with his mother. He's an undersized boy. He's kind of awkward, kind of got a goofy haircut uh, and is is slight and has and he has no friends whatsoever. He keeps to himself. His mom works. So most of the time he's left to his own devices. Occasionally he'll steal money out of her out of her purse to buy candies, but that's basically it. He, we, when we, when we see Oscar for the first time, he is, looks like he's confronting some sort of inner demon. He's basically having an inner dialogue with himself in this tree where he's confronting a bully essentially. And, 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 and he, he's making, he's telling the tree, 
it, this is all imagined about how he would like to be able to respond to these bullies that are making his life miserable. He's a squeal pig. Squeal pig. In the book, he's actually pig. chubby. So that's the reason they call him pig in the, in the book. So I was going to say this is, yeah, this is a 2008 film based on a book. I'm not that, sure when the book came out. I think the 2004 uh, maybe. Okay. John the, Alvin Lundquist. And he wrote the screenplay as well. Correct. Which apparently Alfredson was sort of reluctant to allow to happen because he was like, oh my God, we're going to have all this shit in here that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> but um, what what was this? Was it Lundquist? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I think so. I mean, okay. Lindquist, I think maybe. Uh, the, author, the author of John the novel. John Swede name. Cut a lot of stuff out. And so Alfredson was really sort of pleased with it. And I think this, and, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but the way they deal with one specific aspect of what was cut out, I thought was was interesting and pretty well done. Yeah, no, um, I, but I, I will say, no, I, <laughs> fucking me, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Having read the book and seen the movie, and I saw them in reverse, I did that in reverse order, but I, the what was left out I don't think hurt the film no, at all. No. I think that he was, I, I, I agree that that is a very hard thing for an author to do. It's, it's amazing that he was able to do it yeah. so very well. Cause what I love, one thing I love about this film is that there are two characters. There's Oscar and then, and then he meets Ellie who appears to be a 12 year old girl, just like him. Who's just moved in to, to the, right. to the apartment he, at next some, to him. At some point one night, he sees some people moving in very, yeah. very late at night. This guy is carrying a, a, a very large. And he, and he sees, but he also sees Ellie like walking. Cause it's correct. You know, Cause spoiler, she's a vampire. <laughs> but, but back to this, there's two characters. Everyone else is really filler. Everyone else is there just to sort of support them in their pathway of development as characters. They're, everyone else is kind of cardboard, and that's right. fine. This, that's is, Oscar's, fine. That's this is Oscar's story. Yes. 100%. This is Oscar's yes. coming of age story, essentially. This is a 12-year-old boy in a school, you know, in a school semester, somewhat coming into his own and befriending a young girl. That is his story. Yeah. And it's it's definitely not Ellie's story. There's way more story for her to be, to be told. This is Oscar's story, I think, through and through. And so he sees her come into the you know, come into the apartment complex. He meets her one night out on the playground because he's out there by himself because his mom is working and it's that's the only places his mom will let him play. And Ellie is initially standoffish because clearly she's a vampire and she doesn't need to make friends. Oscar doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't know that Ellie's Social a vampire. She's, she has, she has a smell about her that's different, but, but Oscar also is just desperate for a friend and so human contact right so whatever happens like he doesn't need to be when he asks you know he when he tells her that he smells that she smells funny he's not meaning it to be other than anything other than curious she doesn't wear shoes she doesn't have she doesn't she doesn't wear a coat when it's cold outside um you know and she basically tells him straight up at the front i we can't be friends so and he's oscar's like oh that's a weird thing to say to me the first thing you say out of of your mouth but okay i guess not right i don't want to be your fucking friend anyway (laughs) that way so ultimately ellie does end up befriending oscar um she helps him she advises him on how to deal with his bullies and you know and and all the while uh, the town starts to become thrown into some tumult because uh, ellie's handler is now killing people to trying 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 to kill people to give her the blood that she needs so we get this i we get this sort of idea that she doesn't go out and sort of kill her own food. Sorry to, for that kind of description. <laughs> but did he, uh, his name is Hocken? Hocken right? is the name, yes. Goes out, drugs someone, 
strings him up from a tree, slits her throat and collects the, the blood and brings it back. And when he fails at that one night, she gets angry and goes out and kills and feeds on one of the neighbors, essentially, or someone who lives very, very close, close right? um, yeah. and and who has a kind of circle of friends that hang out at this bar. And, and the local cat man, it's not a cat lady, it's a cat <laughs> man, sees this take place. And, and, and so these friends become uh, more watchful, but that's part of where the town, I guess, kind of gets into like what's going on or sort of what's happening. And I think the implication of why Ellie doesn't go out and do this on her own is because I don't know if she can control it if she does it on her own. The idea is that they're trying to, they, they, they're moving around because the murders happen and eventually they get found out. Right. And that Ellie has a difficulty because... Impulse control. She hasn't, because she has, she's a vampire. And she's 12. Right. Right. So, at, at, so she has been stuck in this suspended animation where she hasn't grown. And she even said, I mean, so she still has she still has childish affectations, right? Mm -hmm. She's still interested in puzzles. She's still drawn to Oscar and the friendship that Oscar has. She's worldly and she knows that she has to do this, but she's also still a child. So that if she were the ones to go out and to feed all the time, she wouldn't be able to control it. She has a handler there that can take care of it for her to kind of keep her under wraps to a certain extent. That's, at least that's the feed that I, that's the feel that I got on it. So, Go ahead. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> so Oscar's, I mean, sorry, Eli's handler is more, he does not want this job, essentially. He's bumbling. He He's older. He's older. I think he's, he's you, you get the feel that Eli has forced him into this servitude. This is really interesting that you just started to call her Eli instead of Ellie. Good point. Because, okay, okay. <laughs> we, should, we should come back to that, right? But, yeah, the handler one night really messes up, and right before he gets caught, he, he tries to kill a, 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 a teenage boy. Kid. His friends come guy. back, right, to find him, and then they, they more or less walk in on, on this happening. And so to, to keep from getting caught or to keep from getting identified, he pours acid over his face and, and sort of disfigures himself so the cops can't go, oh, we know where you are. People can be tied to this young girl. Ellie slash Eli comes to visit him in the hospital. He offers his neck. She feeds and then throws him out the window. And again, a brutal but beautiful shot of him falling from that window and, and hitting his head on sort of an awning. Okay, so this... Ellie Eli thing. So yes, so it turns out that, and through and so, as one young twelve-year-old boy prepubescent starts to fall for Ellie, or at least starts to have feelings for Ellie, starts his friendship starts to deepen. She basically tells him, "Hey, I'm not a girl." Over and over, like several times. Right, so we can't. So like, Oscar asks her, her Ellie, to go steady. <clears throat> Um, she's like, yeah, I don't, what does that mean? Like, I don't know that we can't, you know, and she's, she's like, does anything have to change? And he's like, no, fine. Yeah, we can go steady. Yeah. One night, um, Oscar and Ellie are alone. Now at this point, Ellie is alone because her handler is completely gone. And this is after he's found out that she's a vampire. I think so. Yeah. Cause he would have known because when she comes to his door, because isn't that when she changes clothes? Correct. Well, because she has to, because he, she he didn't let her in, basically. Right, so. <laughs> right, right. Uh, has he, see, did he because see her attack the other woman at this point? I think that he turned away. Like, they were out together, and the woman 
That's ab- so is he that, cuts that, his hand. They're oh, in. That's they right, go that's to right, that. Right. They go they to go the to place where the teenagers hang right. out, yes. and he's like, Thank "Let's you. do a blood bond." And she flips out after he like slits his hand, and and blood starts dropping on so the floor. So she drops to, to suck the blood off yeah. the floor, and that's when he finds and she it. Runs and then away. she goes out and attacks. Correct. The other okay. Woman. Right. 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 So she attacks the woman to get her full f- feed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then Oscar comes to the realization that she's a vampire, and. So Ellie comes back to Oscar's apartment. Oscar's mom is not there. Oscar, Ellie's asking Oscar, can she come in? You have to invite me in. And he's like, well, what happened if I don't? Yeah. So Ellie crosses. The, he's kind of being a dick. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. he's, yeah, I think he's pissed about the whole, like she didn't probably tell him that he was a vampire. Right. It's like right. he secrets between young old boy. <laughs> right. So, yeah. She crosses the threshold and starts to bleed from her eyeballs, from her mouth, from her ears. And then Oscar freaks out, realizes that he, yeah. he still loves his friend. Hemophilia of rejection. <laughs> it's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> At least for vampires. And Oscar invites her in or invites him in. And so then, but at this point, their clothes are all bloody. So Oscar um, invites Ellie, Eli, to go get clothes out of his mom's closet. And when he peeks on her, as 12-year-old boys are wont to do, uh, he sees her naked and he sees some scars in her pubic area. And there's no, there's no explanation. No really. genitalia there. Either. No, no genitalia at all. Now, we learn in the book that... Eli was mutilated and that's how he basically how he was turned is that he was mutilated as a young boy and um, so but he was a boy who was mutilated and then turned into a vampire because in in the film Eli Ellie regardless of of what we assign to that character when we first see the film they are pretty androgynous. The voice both of them is are, really I'm, okay. I was going to say that. Yeah, both of them are very androgynous, and this is what. Okay, I'm going to do this. Right, I'm going to bring up queer theory and how. No, no, but don't. Yeah, don't. But that's. But but horror is is is, is horror a huge and safe fantasy place and fairy that. tales are ripe with queer. No, exactly. That's why I'm bringing it up. I just oh, look. I mean, this is a podcast about movies, and I'm like, well, the queer theory of Judith Butler. <laughs> I mean, this is what I. So, but no, like horror, fairy tales, fantasies, yes, these are a place where the narratives are easily queered. Whether they are intended to be that way or not, using that critical lens makes so much sense. And I think in this movie it does as well. And especially thinking in terms of relationships and and the sort of affront and the danger, quote unquote, that queer relationships pose to heteronormative society, right? Or, or queer relationships posing the danger to these, you know, institutions of hegemony like like traditional marriage. And, and even in this film, the idea of, like, queer temporality, this idea of queer time. Ellie, or Eli, androgynous or not, as a queer character, exists outside of, of heteronormative time and becomes even more of a quote unquote danger to that society. And I just think it's so cool and interesting and how they do that coupled with the relationship idea because she, as we see her, or at least as we're kind of meant to see her in the film as a she, she can't reproduce. They can't have an actual like long-term relationship because she will never grow older than 12. And, and, and to the point that Oscar comes to the realization that it doesn't really matter. Right. So, I mean, yes, he's drawn to her because he thinks that she's a girl. 
and that is normally normally what you would you know you would do. By the time that he finds out that she's not, and and, and she's a vampire, clearly this is obviously extremes, but <laughs> that she's but it, that they're just friends, and whether they're going right. steady or not, or whether nothing had to change, yeah. right? That's yeah. a beautiful like that whole thing, like even a, that whole statement yeah. of like, does anything have to change? No, nothing no. has to change. We're we're, we're just, just friends. It's we're, just we're in us, us, right? It's, it's just, just us. And isn't that what any kind of relationship is? I mean, seriously, platonic relationship or a romantic relationship, they're defining that relationship themselves. They're not letting anyone outside of that relationship tell them how they should be. Hey, Brock. Yeah. Nothing has to change. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> then we can go steady. Okay. <laughs> there might be some questions later, but nothing has to change. But they, <laughs> they can do all this without falling into that trap or falling into that safety of binary oppositions, of clear identity. Right? They don't have to function on that kind of timeline or that identity line. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is what's so cool about like the, the horror genre. And I, I, again, I hate the term genre. <laughs> I do. I just, I don't like it. I don't like titles. But this is what's so cool about that and about movies like this is that they can do this. They can sort of queer that narrative without having to make a giant statement or wave a flag of saying, this is what we're talking about. And to draw the audience and to make the exact same conclusion that Oscar is making, right? Where you're brought in, oh, it's a young boy and a young girl. Great. That's normal. I'll be okay with this. By the time that it gets to we where you need to be okay with it, you're okay. You're with already it. okay with it. Right. It's so, so well done. Yeah. It's so well done. And so the movie kind of culminates. Ellie is, is the this the town is starting to notice that the people are getting killed. Um, and and Oscar's situation is becoming more and more tenuous. It, it, he's having a harder and harder time in school. He at one point Ellie has told him to strike back, so he strikes a young boy in Who's the bullying game. him? Who's who's, who's who's bullying him? And I'll I'll get to this point after we talk about all the, the kind of the plot threats. Okay. But it's bullying him to the point and so he takes his he takes a step back. He he hits the kid in, in the ear with a hockey stick, slices the kid's ear in two, and causes significant damage to the kid. Of course, Oscar gets in trouble for that. Um, and then it becomes a situation where that kid's older brother wants to take revenge on Oscar. And so they set up this elaborate plan, so pseudo elaborate for twelve year olds and whatever high school kids, to lure Oscar to the school, to the to the town pool, to the school pool, and they are going to essentially drown him or poke mm-hmm. one of his eyes out. Mm-hmm. They're basically going to hurt him really, really badly because he hurt his, his you know, younger brother. And in this case, so we see Oscar is doing this after school strength training uh, regimen. He's in a pool. He's, you know, very, you know, he's dancing along to some music. He's, he's so innocent and like so fun loving for the most part. You, And then the the gym teacher gets called away because of some of a ruse that the, that the kids set up and they all come in and basically tell it. They, they grab Oscar by the hair and hold it. And they say, you, you need to hold your breath for three minutes. And if you do that, I'll only nick you on your cheek. But if you don't, I'm going to poke your eye poke out. Your eye out. It's Cause an eye for an ear. Right. And Oscar's like, it can't be done. Yeah. And then he just kind of like gives into the punishment. And he thinks Ellie has left at this right, point. Right. Yeah. He thinks. And so Oscar there. Yeah. So Oscar then is underneath the water and in one of, I think and it may be hyperbole, but one of the greatest scenes in horror film that was history. was so fucking good. It, 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 where you, you, you're watching Oscar try his damnedest to, to stay underwater. You're watching him drown. And, and you see a hand on his head 
And then all of a sudden you start hearing things because you're under you're under the water with Oscar. You start hearing things as you would you know, if you were underwater and all this commotion and everyone is left except for the bullies. And all of a sudden you see feet just skirt across the top of the water so good. and you see and, and you hear this thud. And then all of a sudden and all, all the time, Oscar has his eyes closed, completely has his eyes closed. And then you start to see that hand that holds Oscar's head is chopped off and it floats into the water and head floats in the water, the f- head floats in the water. Still, Oscar keeps his eyes closed. Ellie picks him up out of the water and rescues him. And, and eventually they go off together. They, so she gets back into her big chest, uh, you know, trunk and they, her and Oscar take a train together to wherever the next town will be. It's, it's implied that Ellie has money because she's been around for a long enough time where they've been able to steal, you know, and, and take care of things. But so there's a big confrontation between the two of them at one point where he's like, Oh, steal this from the people you kill. Right. (laughs) He's like, what the fuck is up with that? He has a moralistic stance for a minute for like a second. And then he's like, not cool. (laughs) Right. You're my friend. That scene in the pool is so, is so good. It's so moving. It's so and quiet, kind of operatic. Wait, wait. Yes, yeah. It's because you're there with that kind of drowning out because you're underwater. Everything's muffled, right? Yeah. It is. It, it, it is. Don't, and the fact that you don't see the. I mean, you see remnants of the action. You see bits of the action, but it isn't that sort of long take on violence or that long take on like a monster kill that we see in, in so many other movies or other vampire movies. And I just think it was really artfully and skillfully done. Yeah, it's a delicious comeuppance for the bullies. Oh, yes, but it's also not so gratuitous where you're going, where you felt like- I didn't need to see kids get ripped apart like that. Exactly. Okay, can we talk about what happens next with them? Because this is always, go ahead. Well, yes, we can. So, but he actually, John Alvin actually did write a short story because I think he was- somewhat upset with how like it was interpreted after the film was was done okay but he did write a short story where oscar and eli are together after the fact and eventually what essentially happens and i have not read the short story but i think what happens is that that eli eventually turns oscar and they kind of bad lance it together at that point okay okay (laughs) because this is always because on the face of it this film is a love story it's a story about two rejected people coming together to sort of define their own terms of how they're going to be together and exist in this world and that is beautiful and lovely and it's great i really dig it but then it's like wait what happens Right. Did she have the same arrangement? Did the same did the same thing happen with Hawken or with, you know, caregivers before? Is this just a thing where she's like, I need to find another twelve year old to take care of me for the next, you know, sixty years. Right. And 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 that's maybe a cynical way to look at it, but I am kind of a realist. But it is kind of a very graduate esque type ending, right? Yes. Where you're like, Oh shit, now these people are they've left. Like what do they do now? Yeah. And Oscar, yeah. you know, and it can be played where Eli, if you don't see him hurt them as a 12-year-old, mentally 12-year-old person, entity, it can be seen as very grooming almost to a certain extent. Right, right. To where where Oscar's now going to have to be the, like you said, to be the handler for Eli, to be the one who gets blood for her. Um, And what is he signing himself up for? Granted, his life wasn't great to begin with. So he just wants to escape anyway. And I I think this too all goes back to that kind of idea of of querying the narrative that, that happens in horror too, where, okay, now the rules are different. We're not thinking of this necessarily. Well, okay, I think certain certain people on a certain side of the dial might see that grooming even more. But I think we can see it as a different type of relationship, a different type of of progress or direction or purpose 
um, yeah. because of that, because of looking at it through that different kind of lens. Um, I think it's better. You don't know. I think it's better that it ends, it ends in on an ellipsis. And, right. Yeah. And, and you just, yeah. yeah. And it ends in a, a calling that it's calling attention back to like the graduate. I mean, the graduate, the two of them know, Oh, Oh <laughs> shit. What do we do now? But in this one, um, Oscar had learned Morris code and then taught Ellie Morris code. So they could tap out Morris code between their apartments and she does that on the box as they're leaving. Mm-hmm. And it's kiss. Kiss, right? yeah. And then he taps back small kiss. And so there is this, again, like innocence it's and very joy. lost it's, in translation if you don't actually know it. <laughs> Morse code. But, right. But it, but it doesn't matter either. Just like in, right. I'm going to reference the lost in translation. It doesn't matter what he whispered to her at the end, right? <laughs> right. What matters is the communication that's taking place between them. One thing so, I want to touch on. These two, you know, it, it's kind of a cliche that you never want to work with animals. You never want to work with kids, right? <laughs> These two young actors, and they really haven't done much. I don't think they're actors now. These are amazing performances, especially from Oscar. There are scenes when he, God damn, there are scenes when he's getting tortured or getting bullied by it. And it's he, there's looks in his eyes or the expressions that he made. And I'm fucking going to tear up. Like he's actually like, it's almost like the punishment sublime for him where it's, it's feeling fucking something. And man, it was, his journey is so amazingly heartbreaking. Yes. And it's so, so well done. And when he gets slapped on the face with the reed and his eyes, his, his head kind of tilts back and he closes his eyes, man, it is, that was just a beautiful scene. He doesn't scream. He doesn't cry, at least not in an outburst way. You're right. He, he almost accepts it in a way that he knows it's coming, but also like I said, he's not getting anything else anywhere else. This is the only attention he's getting. This is the only kind of contact he's getting. I mean, that's why the relationship with Ellie is so important and so beautiful. We see the scene. I mean, I question sort of the, the, the scenes with his father, but he goes and spends some time with his father. The first time he goes, it, it's this kind of nice father-son moment. It's really wholesome. Right. The second time they're playing, they're having fun, right? Oscar seems happy, he's smiling. And then a father's friend comes over and insinuates, hey, let's 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 have a cocktail. And the father sort of doesn't, you see him hesitate, doesn't want to. And then he gives in and you just watch Oscar's face fall as if he knows this is the rest of the night. Dad's gonna crawl in this bottle. These two are just going to sit here and drink and smoke and ignore me. And, right. and what's the, I mean, I know you earlier in the conversation, you brought up, you know, alcoholic father. And, and that's, that's what this kid feels just abandoned everywhere. Mom's always at work, never home enough, never really giving enough attention to Oscar. When Oscar gets in trouble for pushing back against the bullies, he's the one that gets yelled at, gets screamed at. She doesn't even ask him why, right. like what happened, what's going on. I don't have kids, but I'd like to think that I'd be like, okay, wait a minute, right? Why would you do this? Or what's going on or what happened that made you, that, that, that caused you to, to do this and why? Right? right. Yeah. What did I miss? Right. What, I mean, like clearly you're, yes, what you're, did I do? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. You're, you're striking I mean, out you're for some parent. reason. <laughs> yeah. All my kids any, are. Any, anyway, sorry. No, <laughs> it, it's, it's just the, all of that set against the cold, like harsh 
environment that they're in. It just like regardless of what Oscar's life is with Ellie, Eli, it doesn't matter because it's going to be at right. least some sort of experience that gives him something back that he's not, not there. <laughs> right. Right. And, 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 you know, and like he's dressed up on the train, there's some sort of, you know, he's, you know, on a nice train, he's on an, he's in a nice area of the train. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking. God's like all of kids. it. <laughs> right. Um, so to the aspects that they took away from the book, which was the pedophilia aspect of it all, I think that's fine. I think yeah. that would have distracted because again, this is Oscar's story. This is, and, and I understand when you're setting up a novel and there's, you've got to have more backstory to all these characters, but this yeah. is Oscar's story. So telling, Eli's backstory doesn't really serve the purpose here in this movie. It's very, very smart um, to to focus on these. And like you said, to keep everyone else as a somewhat of a distraction. The only time that it really kind of veers back into Ellie's story is when she attacks the young, the, the lady and you know, you get the whole, you get the, what it seems like they almost had to do that for horror aspects, right? Where the, you get this kind of CGI'd cat scene where yeah, she walks into right. the cat man's right. um, apartment and all the cats are hissing. It's almost played a little too over the top. And, and I mean, you can make the argument that it is. And all these cats attack her. The scene where she dies in the in the hospital when she catches on fire is a brilliant scene. Yeah. Had they just kept that, I think would have served the, the movie a little bit better. I get. We see of, her struggling anyway. We understand right. that she's like, I'm done with, I can't do this. Okay. Yeah, hundred percent recommend. Did you? Yes. Did you see the the remake or the? No, Lion? no. And I, I I was going to, but then I think so when it first came out, and it's Matt Reeves that directed it, right? The right. Same, yeah. The same guy that did uh, the, the latest Batman, Batman. And all the Rise of the Well, not all of them, but the two uh, Planet of the Planet Apes. Planet of the Apes. Remake, yeah. So uh, I think, and I think he's, I think he's good. I think he's a good filmmaker. I, I, but I had no intention. I, I had no desire really to see this revisited. I think by someone else, especially after watching the Goodnight Mommy remake. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm out. I'm, I, I don't need to. I, I, I don't care how well it's done. I mean, that sounded snooty. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're right, though. There's, 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 va- that's, that's valid it, 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 to, to not want to sully or to like try to, because again, you're only going to, you're only going to watch in comparison, right? And, and right. To- and I, and a lot of times I don't think that's necessarily fair to the remake. I, sure. I, especially, maybe I'm giving too much credit to remakes, but. It, it clearly it wasn't as good. They 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 move up some of the action, so so you don't have to watch it. I'll tell you what what happens. So the scene where Hawken and clearly there are all different names in this movie. Uh, the scene where Hawken pours acid on his face, it's different, and and so you're so you're brought in at the very beginning of Hawken's ambulance ride to uh, the hospital. And then they introduce a cop character that is kind of always lurking and always possibly being some sort of, where, whereas in Let the Right One In, when Eli's about to be found out and it's by the guy who's just, it, just some slug. It's by somebody from the neighborhood. It's by by a friend of the woman who, who Ellie attacked, by right. a friend of the man that Ellie killed. Right, and that kind of bonds those you know Oscar and Ellie together. And this, it's a it's a police officer, and it's played by the great Elias Coteus. But unfortunately, um, so I, yeah, they, so they they cut out all of the all of the townspeople. So it's really just Hawken, the cop. The, everything's kind of encompassed into the into the cop, and they amplify the the CGI and the horror aspects of it a little bit. But but what they do by putting that scene at the beginning is immediately introduce the danger. 
Like they don't let any of the, so Oscar's story is completely diminished. Eli's story is completely diminished. Now you're just worried about what's going to happen to these town people. Doesn't give a shit what happens to Hawkins. I mean, yeah, and 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 how it happens is a little bit different. There's a, there's kind of a gratuitous car wreck scene. So, from an American audience, it's a little bit more titillating. Sure, but it yeah. completely misses the point of. It sounds the, like it cuts the out movie. the yeah. humanity. There's actually well. a Showtime series now I know. called Let the Right One In. Now, this I watched the first episode just in preparation for this. I watch a lot of shit for this fucking podcast. I hope you guys recognize that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But this, it, it's really a completely different take. There, yeah. There's a lot of the same elements, but this is like a, and I, I won't be watching it. It is a, this, a guy who his Damien Bashir. Yes. His daughter is Ellie Eleanor. There's no ambiguity there. Um, and they're trying to find a cure for her vampirism. I could give two shits. I'm not interested. Yeah, okay. I'm not I mean, interested. And it, it, to this idea of whether they will or they won't and like all of these yeah. things, like I, you know, it, it may be a great show. I don't, I don't begrudge anybody liking it, but yeah, it's not for me. So recommended if you like, yes. let's bring it. Okay. All right. I'll start. You start. Yeah? Okay. Yes. All right. My first recommended if you like is Thirst 2009. Park Chan-wook film starring Song Kang-ho, loosely based on, inspired by Emile Zola's Therese Raquin. So you got this weird love story, toxic relationship, vampires, again, coming to terms with sort of who you are, accepting how you do and don't fit into a particular society, uh, and the reason, rightly or wrongly, why. There's my summary. So mine first, mine first, (laughs) mine first... (laughs) is Celia. Uh, Mine is Celia by Ann Turner. Have you been familiar with this movie? 1981, um, Australian film about a young girl who is kind of coming into her own in post-World War II Australia, where Australia is dealing with a rabbit infestation and also an infestation of communism. And this young girl who has lost her grandmother and is starting to see things in a fantastical way, but also she's being bullied by her her, um, cousin. And she's also dealing with the fact that the Australian government is going to take her bunny away. Mm -hmm. It sounds silly, but Again, the girl's name is Rebecca Smart, one of the best performances by a child probably ever put on film. It is a difficult film to watch in the sense it's, it's kind of hard to get a finger on, but it's but by the time that it, all of the, everything happens in it and she starts to find her own voice, it's really, really beautiful and really, really, really well done. Okay, my second one is The Others, right. directed by Alejandro Minibar. Have you seen his thesis, by the way, his film thesis? I have. Oh, not. you should know. You should find it and check it out. It, it, it's a good one. It's about snuff films and porn. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so this this is starring Nicole Kidman. It's a ghost story. Nicole Kidman lives in a dark house with her photosensitive kids and becomes conv- convinced that they're being haunted by ghosts. But are they really? That is a fun movie. <laughs> it um, really is. I think it was his first English language film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. So my second one is Mean Creek, directed by Jacob Estes, starring Rory Culkin and Josh Peck. Have you seen this movie? Yeah, it's been... Why, that was... When did that come 2004 out? is when okay. it came out. So okay. this is a small little independent film. Rory Culkin is a bullied young, slight young boy, and 
he invites his bully over to his house and him and his older brothers take him out on a creek ride to exact revenge on him. It's kind of done in a, a handheld footage type of way, but not. But that's not distracting. It's not the entirety of the movie, and it's not distracting at all. Great performances by young actors. Uh, really, really well done. Really, really heartbreaking. Highly recommend. It reminds me a little bit of the Larry Clark film Bully. I mean, Bully is a little. I mean, I you know, know that, no, I know. I've had a And that, this yeah. actually, Bully probably would have been one of my um, R.I. <laughs> YL. I mean, it doesn't roll off the tongue as the way I would. <laughs> they recommend it if you like. I really, really like. <laughs> I really, really like that movie. Bully is is a, is a very, very interesting watch. Yeah, it's, it was it's not easy to watch. I saw that in the theater with like two other people. We weren't together. Oh, that um, makes it awkward. I know, I know. When we all sat like in different parts, and I think we're all like, "Fucking hell!" Yeah, um, it was tough. It was tough. Of course. I mean, when you go see a film by the director of kids, because it's a film by the director of kids, you kind of know what you're... So we're going to talk Larry Clark on this podcast. At Excellent. Some point. Yes. Okay. There you go, listeners. Something to look forward to. <laughs> All right. My my next film is Watcher, directed by Chloe Acuno, starring Michael Monroe. Did you, have you seen that? It's, yeah, it's so good. good. Yeah. I love this film. This is 2000, or 2022. Um, Michael Monroe from It Follows. Uh, she plays a young woman named Julia who moves to Bucharest with her husband and starts to think the stranger who watches her from the apartment across the street is the local serial killer targeting women. And she's right. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Again, another like moody, atmospheric I, commentary on <laughs> believing women. So it was so good. And it was a big Sundance hit. Yeah, it's it's a good one. So my last one, this may become a thing for me. I'm just going to throw in one that's kind of a wild card. My last one is 1981's Bloody Birthday. (laughs) (laughs) This is a schlocky horror film uh, about three kids who were born all on the same day during during a lunar or a solar eclipse, meaning that once they were born, something was missing in their psyche. So as they come of age... They've all three kind of grown up together. They all start to take exact revenge and to wreak havoc on this town. It stars a very, very young um, Julie Brown. If you remember the MTV VJ Julie Brown, the redhead, not not downtown. Oh, not Julie, downtown not, Julie not, Brown. Not downtown Julie Brown, but the redhead Julie Brown. And it also stars uh, a gentleman named Billy Jane as one of the kids. And he was kind of ubiquitous in the '80s film scene. So he was in just one of the guys as like the little brother. He was in uh, the Beastmaster as the young okay. uh, Mark Singer, and he was in Coo. Joe, those types of movies. So, gotcha. Bloody Birthday. I think it's on Shutter. If you have Shutter, Shutter's it's, great. Shutter is, is silly, silly. Shutter is one of the best streaming services around. And I'm not a huge horror fan, but like I told you, horror is doing so many interesting things that that when it, it goes across side so, of genres it, aren't. It goes across. I mean, really, there's so well, much stuff that gets lumped in as horror. Again, like air quotes, horror. Right. And, I, and that's why I hate because so many things get lumped into that. I hate these genre titles. But there's a lot of like there's a lot of Italian films on Shutter. There's a lot of Japanese films, Asian the new films. Dario on Argento. I have not seen. I that haven't yet. either. I'm I'm hesitant to see. It. It, it, the latest output of Dario has not been yeah, that great. This a- is Asia Argento's in it though. So, <laughs> well, I, I liked go. her best in her work with Olivier Says. Anyway, because I'm not pretentious, I promise. Okay. Anyway. So, anyway, next week. Next week we're going to be talking. Week, we have a special special episode. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be talking the Woman King with our first guest. With our first guest guest, um, Devin Goodman. The Woman King stars Viola Davis, directed by Gina, Gina Prince Bythewood. So that will be next week. Other than that, if you're in the DFW area, check out 
the Fort Worth Film Club's November screenings, upcoming yep. screenings at fortworthfilmclub.com. Outside of that, uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, thanks for guys. listening. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time, 